I'm sure there are many people who would like to speak out, who do feel intimidated by um, the public will think I'm terrible or they think I'm a, a fanatic. Too bad, you know. You've got a right to speak out. You've got a right to have an opinion. Welcome to Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, an initiative of the Pro-Life Guys podcast where we feature the incredible women and men from across Canada and around the world who are making sacrifices of their time and energy for the protection of pre-born children, for the support of their families, and for the betterment of our world. And I'm really excited to be a part of this episode and welcome a somebody that I've read about and I've heard an interview done by you, Gwen, but I've, I don't think I've actually met you in person. So welcome to, to this episode of Humans of the Pro-Life Movement. It's a pleasure to be here. Great stuff. The, the first question, Gwen, that I like to ask, and, and before we dive into the role that you play in Canada's pro-life movement, it's just a little bit about yourself. I think that the media works really hard to demonize and try to stereotype the pro-life movement into a very, very tight corner. And I'm wondering if you could just share a little bit about yourself to kind of humanize the pro-life movement, I guess. Well, I guess to be human, I'm married with uh, five children and nine grandchildren. Um, I'm a lawyer by profession. Um, when I went to law school, there were a grand total of three women and 110 men in the class. So it was very interesting for me to be in law school. But when I was in law school, I learned the unborn child could inherit property. I, I knew that if a child were harmed in utero, that when it was born, it could get compensation. And I was disturbed <clears throat> when I um, came back to Canada. I was in the States where my husband was doing postgraduate work. I came back to Canada in 1971, and I was quite disturbed and alarmed to find the abortion law, which had been changed in 1969, um, to allow abortion on, on the basis of the life and health of the mother with no definition of health. And of course, what happened is it was widely interpreted and uh, it was really abortion on demand. And I was concerned that there was no uh, uh, protection for the unborn child. Um, this is back in 1971, believe it or not. And um, <clears throat> I thought, well, I'll join a pro-life group and the pro-life group um, I'll be able to maybe help them. And I was horrified to discover in Toronto, which is the broadcast center of Canada, had no pro-life group at all. So I thought, well, I guess I'll see what I could do. And um, I had a friend in Ottawa who belonged to a pro-life group, and she um, gave me their name and address, and I wrote to them and said, do you have any Toronto members on your list of membership and they promptly send me back about a list of maybe 35 or 40 people so i got on the phone and called all of them and asked if they'd be interested in forming a pro-life group and they said yes so um it was um i have a mother of um, um, two young children under two and i was pregnant with a third so I didn't exactly expect myself to be the um, 
the manager of all this, <clears throat> and um, I didn't have a large enough place to hold a meeting, so I called a friend, or, or called one of the members who I didn't even know on the list, and she subsequently became a dear friend, and I said, do you know, do you, can I use your house to hold this famous first meeting? And she said, no, her house was too small, but she did know of someone who was committed to pro-life who would provide a house. So I called her and she didn't know me. I could have been a mass murderer for that matter. But I said, I want to organize a pro-life organization for Toronto. Could we use your home? And she said, without the slightest hesitation, of course, I would be delighted to host such a meeting. So the first meeting was in <clears throat> February of 1971, and it was a cold, rainy night, and about 30 people came, and it was really a call to the cross-section of Canada. There were, was a doctor, there was myself, a lawyer, there was a professor, there was housewife, there were nurses, there were secretaries, um, there was a construction worker. Um, they all the cross-section sort of reacted, and I thought, there must be something about that they've heard the voice to protect the unborn child at all these people from different, you know, we never knew each other. And um, it just seemed amazing to me that, that some of us would call and we came to this meeting and the uh, hostess was delightful. She had um, gone all out with her best china and silver and, and uh, little good things to eat. She was magnificent hostess for all of us. And so that was how the Toronto Life was born. Just really an ad, an ad hoc sort of <clears throat> organization. And um, <clears throat> the following month, I noticed that the, um, um, the, uh, there was a meeting held in Toronto of a um, group of senators that have been appointed by Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau to look for constitutional reform. So I thought, well, why not? I'll go and attend and speak for the constitutional reform to protect the life of the unborn child. And it was extraordinarily unusual in 1971 to do that. And some one of the senators came to me and said, I'd never heard that before. I said, yes, I know, and it's the beginning. I had enough sense to know this was the beginning of the challenge. And um, so we started, and, and Toronto Right to Life had absolutely no money. Uh, we decided one day that we would just, we had to put all our material together because it was hard to use it in different homes. So we went all out and we rented uh, an office in downtown Toronto for the grand sum of $100 a month, and I remember thinking, my goodness, how will we ever get that kind of money? And we had no furniture, and for the few months, we just sat on cardboard boxes. But fortunately, the Ontario government was uh, changing from wooden um, desks and chairs and, and filing cabinets to metal, and they gave them out to all, all donated to any charity, and we were a charity. so. Um, that was a very fortunate thing. We got some tables and chairs, and we just began our work. Um, as a lawyer, I was very concerned about um, getting into tax-exempt status,
because um, I felt that we had to be incorporated for number one to protect us because we were controversial even in 71. But also I wanted to get a tax-exempt status for doing philanthropic and educational work on the unborn. So we did get a tax-exempt status because at that time National Revenue didn't know how evil pro-life people were and they were generous. There was one or two other pro-life groups, one in Windsor, I believe, that had a tax-exempt status. But it was only a year or two later that National Review realized we were a danger to society and wouldn't give us a tax-exempt status. But from that time on, we, we got uh, one of our projects was somebody had the brilliant idea we would hand out Christmas cards, sell Christmas cards as a fundraiser. That was the first year or so of our existence. Well, that was amazing because people would buy our Christmas cards. They sent it all off across Canada and into Europe. And we were inundated with people saying, how can we join your organization? Or better still, they'd say, how can I organize one in my own community? And that was really an accident. It was a grace of God that we thought of that. But also I noticed because we were one of the very few pro-life groups and we were extremely active, we were getting communications from all over Canada. So it was then I decided that we really had to have a national group. Toronto was a Toronto group, but it really couldn't handle all the tremendous uh, communication and, and demands on our time. So we decided we would form a national pro-life educational group and there was we took the name from the group that I had contacted initially in Ottawa and it was called Alliance for Life. So we organized the Alliance for Life which was a national pro-life um, uh, educational arm. But it soon became apparent that education wasn't enough. We had to get to the politicians to change the law. So um, we then formed um, a non-tax exempt um, charity organization called at that time um, Coalition for Life and to use for political purposes. And we were on the phone, we were constantly um, lobbying. I was doing both Toronto as well as the um, Coalition for Life Political, and I was speaking across Canada at the time. So it was a very hectic period. But at that time, um, there wasn't the, the resistance to abortion. We never had a Justin Trudeau saying you couldn't run for the political party. Um, at that time, it was prior to when you could walk into Parliament and walk into an MP's office. Of course, after, um, you know, the... Uh, World Trade problem, um, you know, destruction in and uh, um, in New York. Then the security became very tight in Parliament, and you had to get an appointment. But it was much freer and easier. And also, I found there were many, many MPs who were very supportive, especially in the Conservative Party. And one of them, Walter Dinsdale from Brandon, Manitoba, formed a pro-life uh, caucus on his own with liberals and, and even one NDP who happened to be a Catholic priest and, um, and all the rest and some liberals who were adamantly pro-life. 
and it was very reassuring that we were making headway. And I think things were going very well. Um, um, as a lawyer, I did the research. I could find that the law was swinging over in our direction to protect the unborn child until disaster hit. And the disaster was Pierre Trudeau's Charter of Rights. Um, and I knew instinctively right away that that charter would be used by the courts who were appointed um, to overturn the abortion law. And I advised the pro-life groups that this was coming down the pike and that we had to fight with all our might against the Charter of Rights, which we did do. Um, we did everything possible. We lobbied. The premiers and the prime minister never met without a demonstration outside. We'd say, get rid of the charter, save the unborn, and we had signs and posters. Um, everything was going very well. In fact, we were so dominant that one of the liberal MPs said, Trudeau came into caucus in, in 1980 and said he was losing the charter debate because of the pro-life movement, but that he had a solution. And his solution was he'd get Cardinal Carter, who was the Archbishop and Cardinal of Toronto, to come on side and support the charter. And therefore, all the Catholic MPs, all the others of faith, would then be able to support the charter. And thus began the most um, difficult part in that um, Cardinal Carter um, finally was lobbied by Trudeau. In fact, the pro-life liberal MP said every Wednesday morning in caucus, Trudeau would give a report how his lobbying was going with Cardinal Carter. And Cardinal Carter finally succumbed in April of 1980 and uh, supported the Charter of Rights. And, and that was awful. Um, the Liberal MP said that the, when the news was brought that Cardinal Carter would back the Charter, the, the MPs, um, they were actually in the, in the room outside the House of Commons, heard the news. They slapped each other on the back. They jumped up on chairs. They said, the chains have been removed, and now we can support the Charter. And it was a devastating impact for all of us. And of course, what happened is what we knew it would happen in that in um, 1988, January, the Supreme Court of Canada struck down the abortion law, saying that it discriminated and it was not equality, that some women couldn't have access to it. it they didn't say that abortion was wrong and they didn't say it was a constitutional right to have an abortion. All they said <clears throat> was the law has to be redrafted, and that even the feminist um, um, member, the judge of the court, um, said, you know, there was a, you know, the fetus, quote, she called it, should be protected at some stage of gestation. It was never, ever said that women had a constitutional right to abortion. And the court said they expected Parliament to go back and to bring in legislation. And the only one who ever tackled that was in 1990 when um, Conservative member Mulroney brought in legislation. But unfortunately, <clears throat> he, uh, his uh, attorney general was a hidebound radical feminist, Kim Campbell. 
and the legislation was dreadful because it would give a doctor who, in his opinion, believed that abortion was necessary, the right to kill the child. And when we saw that, it was extremely offensive um, to us, and we wouldn't back that legislation. Um, it was one of the saddest um, periods and most difficult periods because we all knew what lay ahead. The journey had suddenly become horribly difficult, but we never deterred us. It never stopped us. But during the charter debate, one thing I noticed was the radical feminists were all funded by Trudeau, um, Pierre Trudeau, would get on national TV and say, the women of Canada demand abortion on demand. And of course, that sense me saying, well, nobody ever asked me, and I'm a woman. Who are these um, you know, women to stand up there saying they speak for all of us? So I knew then that we had to form a pro-life, pro-family women's organization to uh, counteract the radical feminists who are dominating the whole agenda on abortion and who had backed Trudeau, and Trudeau was funding them. Without a penny again, we got organized, and we became a national organization again. I knew we had to get incorporated very quickly. But it all started around my kitchen table with seven stalwart souls who decided we've got to organize, and we did. We got incorporated. That was um, in January of 1983. We did that, and then we were incorporated in, in September of 1983. Again, I knew we'd be highly controversial. And by incorporation, there would be a corporate veil to protect the individual members from attack. And that was fortuitous because, boy, were we ever attacked. The newspapers couldn't believe that there would be women opposed to abortion. Um, politicians even would, couldn't believe that there would be a women's organization opposed to abortion. But we have been around, um, you know, for years, and the feminists, when the conservatives came in in 2008 or 206, they stopped the funding. Well, of course, the feminists just collapsed at that time. And because we were grassroots, we had no government funding. We were able to continue on the, the struggle because um, we had grassroots support. We didn't rely on the, uh, on the government to try to tell us what we could do and what we couldn't do. The feminists collapsed, but of course they were resurrected when the new liberal government came in, and they're still funded to millions and millions of dollars each year. And we've only received funding from our own membership fees and donations, but we've managed. One of the things, the most important things we did during our early years was to be involved in the courts. Um, one thing I had found that when the government, when the Supreme Court handed down the decision in January '88, I was very concerned, and I took the time. I went up to Ottawa to the Supreme Court building, and asked the registrar for all the documents that were used for the, by the court to hand down the abortion decision. And there were seven files, and I went through every single file every single piece of paper and there was not one single 
pro-life intervention or statement in the whole seven files. So I made up my mind at that moment, never again will a court deal with a case on abortion or family without having a voice of pro-life and pro-family. So that was one of the roles that real women took on because as soon as the case came, and there were many in the first few years, I looked around for some group to intervene and there wasn't anybody. And so I said, well, I guess real women will have to do that. So we we intervened in multi-cases. Now we don't have to because you've got the Catholic Civil Rights, you've got the Evangelical Christian Fellowship, you've got um, Salvation Army. All these groups have been intervening in the court cases. Not that it's been very helpful, but because the court was very biased and protected. But I knew there had to be a counter-argument placed before the court, and Real Women was there to say that not all women were pro-abortion. In other words, history will say, what could the court do? All the women of Canada wanted abortion, and I wanted to block that argument. The second thing is, because the court was so biased, and I could give details, but it's too detailed and legal, how they uh, overlooked um, law in order to be make a political decision. And I wanted to have a pro-life, pro-family voice before the court because I did not want the court to exonerate themselves in later years and say, what could we do? Nobody argued differently. Well, they did get arguments that were pro-life, pro-family, and never can they say we were had no option but to pan down these decisions. They did have an option. And what history will show, they ignored the law and common sense, I might say. And uh, But now, it, there's no such case that goes before the courts that we don't have other groups intervening, for which I'm very grateful so real women could step back on that. And others took over. But they saw, I guess what I saw in 1988, how important it was to show in history how weak the judges were, how politically correct and how they ignored the law and the protection of the unborn. So that is written and documented in history. And I also hope that all our interventions and effort will be used as a basis in a future year that um, that there will be a legal challenge to this, the abortion situation today. One of the things that really troubled me was in the court decision, the court used as a reason to strike down the abortion law was a report um, that had been um, set up by the Ontario, pro-abortion Ontario government that was written by a pro-abortion women doctor who was a member of doctors to repeal the law. It was clearly biased and prejudiced, but the court used that document to strike down the abortion law and it showed me the, the weakness of not having anyone there to cross-examine on that, that document. But the abortion law in Canada was based strictly on a document that was biased, prejudiced, all her references were abortion clinics and in Buffalo, New York and such, and it did not reflect the situation. 
but it was used as the critical decision-making for um, seven of the nine judges. Now, two of the judges in the Supreme Court decision um, said, uh, um, didn't go along with the majority to strike down the law. And one of them, Mr. Justice Martland, said it was, um, you know, it was the document that was used to strike down the law. He put it in his decision. The document used to strike down the law was not introduced properly into the court. It flew in from who knows where, some pro-abortion contact. It flew in, was not admissible evidence in the court. And so that will go down in history that can be used as an example. Um, we put a complaint in to the uh, Canadian Judicial Council about the court using improper, non-admitted evidence. And of course, we knew we'd be thrown out. But all we wanted by the Judicial Council, but we did want to leave a paper trail that someday, somehow, this will be picked up by some other future lawyer. Maybe you're unborn, I hope not, but you never know. So that was how we got involved uh, in the pro-life issue. But um, it was a very um, challenging pe um, time in, in Canada. And I, it, even though the abortion law was struck down, the groundwork was done. Um, you know, the pro-life groups began across Canada, began the research. And one thing I found, um, the younger generation of pro-life workers are different from the ones that we were. We were just shocked and horrified at the unborn child and indignant. But I'm finding that the young people now who have taken over the pro-life movement are doing it differently and better in that they're using technology. They're cooler, calmer, more analytic. Uh, I think that they're doing a wonderful job. So I'm, I'm glad that we could lay the groundwork, develop the arguments, but now the younger generation and the pro-life groups are doing wonderful work. And I think it's to their credit that they're doing it differently because times have changed. And hopefully, you know, times will come, you know, that the law, when you look at the United States and you see how powerful the pro-life movement is and the tremendous impact it's had, I'm hoping someday. But when you find when we're not allowed to speak about abortion, when you're not allowed to debate it, um, what the left wing is doing is trying to suppress the dissent. And that has been extremely difficult. Freedom of speech, freedom of expression, um, freedom of religion, all of them are being denied when you cannot even speak publicly and you cannot be a pro-life candidate even to run for parliament. And this has made it much more difficult and much more challenging today. Yeah, and and I think it's so important for us to to look at that and, and um, for, for this generation of younger pro-life um, activists and those who are involved legally and politically and pastorally, whatever it may be, and, and standing on the shoulders of giants. And I'm curious, as arguably one of the architects of Canada's pro-life movement, as, as one of the founding members, not only, as you mentioned, of Toronto Right to Life and Alliance for Life of Ontario, and, and national as well, obviously, Campaign Life Coalition, Real Women of Canada. Um, I'm sure the list goes on and on even beyond that. I, I'm sure that 
over these um, years, the decades that you've been involved in in sacrificially giving your time and energy, you've seen these kind of peaks and valleys of the pro-life movement, of robust times of engagement and, and progress being made, and then times of frustration and losing traction and culture seeming to entirely ignore the pro-life movement. I'm wondering, I, I know this, so I, I sent you a couple of questions before the interview, um, and, and this is going off script entirely, and so I do apologize, but bearing in mind some of those peaks and valleys, I'm, I'm curious what in your mind would be the hallmarks of uh, a robust pro-life community, the times that you've seen pro-life um, organizations and the pro-life movement as a whole really build momentum the best, what kind of hallmarks or characteristics have you seen at that time? And on the, on the, the hallmarks opposite end, of that, sorry. The, sorry, the hallmarks of a successful pro-life organization or pro-life movement in the, in the times that you've seen organizations, whether it's um, them gathering a, a tremendous amount of support from the local churches or, or people around, what kind of attributes or characteristics of of the pro-life movements during those kind of peaks can can you point to i wonder of of seeing the rapid growth that you saw with alliance for life the rapid growth and and establishment of real women what was it about those organizations that attracted um passionate people such as yourself and what could pro-life organizations today learn to build themselves more of the traction that you may have seen at the establishment of those groups. If, I don't know if that makes sense, what I'm asking, but, but what are your thoughts on, on that, I guess? I think it's people who in the pro-life movement, um, there's an ability to do crit critical analysis. You do not accept, which actually is superficial garbage that the media is handing out. You have an ability to say that isn't right, and also the, the honesty and integrity to speak out. It's easier to just go along and not make a, an issue of anything and to just swim with the tide. But pro-life people seem to think, I don't agree, and I'm willing to take the vilification. I'm willing to stand up because it's such a vital, significant point of respect for the dignity of human life. And I think when I look over the years of all the people, they're just, they're not um, different, but they're in the sense that they're ordinary individuals with families, but they all had the ability to be discerning, to say, that isn't right, and this is garbage that I've been fed, and I don't accept it. And it's the same thing on euthanasia. Um, many people say, oh, well, you know, the wonderful, um, dignified death and stopping of pain. That isn't what's happening with euthanasia. It's an awful death. And now they're trying to use the organs um, of people to encourage them to take euthanasia, to use their organs. But there are people who will say, that is wrong. And I won't go for the garbage handed down by death with dignity in the media. What a beautiful, splendid way to die. It isn't. It's horrible. You're given a lethal injection that those on um, death row, the same injection that people in death row in the United States are given for having committed murder, you're given exactly the same medication. And it's not an easy case of easy death, but pro-life people 
seem to have an insight to know that they are not going to be uh, gullible and they won't put up with this nonsense. And you don't, you don't even have to have a super duper education, you just have to have plain ordinary everyday common sense that tells you this is objectionable. But they're, they're, it's difficult period because the media is so left wing. When we started <clears throat> in the 1970s, 80s, there were some media that would listen to us. And there were many MPs who would listen to us who were pro-life. But the dissent has been, um, been um, pushed down and ridiculed um, and has been having a much more difficult chore than we did initially. And that's why I'm glad these young people have the... Um, energy and the energy and the drive and the capability of using um, you know such as yourself cam who is doing something to the pro-life movement we all have been given gifts um, and and no matter what it is some can write some can just make a donation some can do technical technical things um, we all have a gift and whatever you're called to do we do um, but the hallmark is independence of mind. If ever I think of any pro-life person, it's always, they're nobody's fool. They know they're not going to be pushed around. And it's easier not to raise a fuss, but it's the right thing to do, to stand up and not to be pushed around by the media, the left wing, uh, a political party who won't even allow you to express an opinion or to... You have no party in Canada that's pro-life. In the States, the Republican Party is very pro-life. But we have no such political party. They're all left, pro-abortion, pro-euthanasia. And we have to stand up. And, and I think in time that's going to happen, hopefully. But each one of us in the pro-life movement are, are nobody's fool. That's what I can explain it. And we're not going to be pushed around. We're not going to be talked down to by the media or the political party or whatever. We're going to stand for life and dignity. And that seems to be the key that, 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 is, that is involved. We all come from different faiths. We have no faith. Um, we've had atheists in our midst, but they know it's wrong to kill human life. Um, and we all come from different backgrounds, different educational and different cultures. Um, I'm finding that um, the pro-life movement has, has changed and there's many more people from multicultural communities who are pro-life than when we started. They never spoke up. So there's changes coming, but they delight me to no end because each one is an individual doing their job as they're called to do. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great way to point it, that, that as um, the, the media has developed, obviously we've seen conventional media become, as you mentioned, more streamlined, supportive of abortion. And yet, whether through social media, whether through other avenues of, of podcasts or blogs or other avenues, more pro-lifers are able to stand up and speak their mind and, yeah, speak into the darkness and, and the rhetoric that is often shrouding the abortion conversation. So I think you make a great point there. Just two more questions before we wrap up this episode, because I, I'm so fascinated. You, you've already mentioned many of the the kind of timeline components, not only in your journey in the pro-life movement, but also kind of 
in building Canada's pro-life movement. And I'm, I'm just wondering, are there any other memorable either experiences or interactions that will stay with you regardless of how much, um, how many more times you stand um, and, and make argument to the Supreme Court? What other kind of experiences stand out in, in these last several decades I, of involvement? I think the most marvelous memory I have was, I believe it was May 30th, 1979, when we presented a petition to Parliament for one million signatures, never in the history of Canada had there ever been a petition. And we had sent the petition out to every, in every language in Canada, Polish, Ukrainian, Italian, and to churches, to, to temples, to synagogues, everywhere and to non-religious places, pro-life people would stand in the malls for hours on the weekends with the petition. And we, in the first time in history, presented the petition. And it was the most glorious day. It was a beautiful um, cloudless sky. And we had, um, every province had its own cart. They paraded through downtown Ottawa. And then they came up, the 10 cars, and in front of the of the procession was a, a piper piping glorious tune and and a flag of every province flew from every car and they were met at the door of the house of commons by all the pro-life mps and there was a lot of them and then the petition was introduced into the house of commons that afternoon and usually, you ha um, to, to be able to speak to petition, you have to have unanimous consent of the House of Commons. And one of the rare times in history that the unanimous consent was given, that the, the MP who introduced and tabled these million petitions um, had unanimous consent to speak to the petition of a million signatures. That's one thing it showed me that pro-life could organize. And it was the most beautiful, exciting, thrilling day I think I've ever had. <laughs> um, just capturing that sort of thought that we did something to show the strengths of the pro-life movement. And one of the results of it was the government um, did set up a um, committee to study the abortion law. Um, they did have a pro-life caucus was formed of MPs and that pro-life caucus still existed today. Um, it didn't change the law and the substance, but we did make a change. And we put down our mark in Canadian history that it was a very important issue and that it must be dealt with. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you mentioned that. I, I know that my colleague Jonathan Van Maren has done an entire episode, if not multiple, on the petition of one million. I feel like there's so many people who are unaware of this. And and we're, we're going to do, Peter and I are going to do a full episode at some point um, on the Pro-Life Guys podcast, because I feel like this is so important for people to realize that especially at, at that era, right? That, that this isn't a matter of sharing around a petition on Facebook, something that is incredibly easy to do and yet rarely gains any traction. This is, as you mentioned, people sacrificing entire Saturdays at the mall or door knocking through their entire neighborhood or trying to get everybody in their church. I think it's amazing, um, this petition of one million. Yes, it was wonderful. It was a glorious moment in the pro-life history. But the struggle that goes on 
And no matter what happens, there'll always be those in the pro-life movement. I have no doubt that there'll always uh, be people who will speak out. I've seen that again and again to the generations when I used to think, my goodness, who's going to replace us? Um, but there's always theirs. And I look at the young people today and I just, I'm overwhelmed by their energy, their drive, their commitment. So I know that they're, <laughs> we're being replaced as we get older. Um, I'm still involved. Um, it's been a long journey, um, but it was a very, um, I'm, I've no regrets that I did what I had to do. And I was glad that I could use my education as a lawyer and a wife and as a mother uh, in order to to serve the cause. And I know um, at that time, I was started in 71, I was told, oh, don't get involved in that issue, Gwen. You'll never be accepted in the legal community. And yet now I find there are hundreds and hundreds of lawyers who are pro-life, who are speaking out, who are making court challenges, you know, that so the times are changing in good way as well. And that there people are not, even though the media is trying to shut them up, there are lawyers, there are physicians, there are teachers, and there's ordinary housewives and carpenters and all of them have been called to speak out. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that this is a great point to wrap this conversation on of, as you mentioned, there are people who are taking on this torch, taking on the baton of leadership and whether it's leadership in a formal capacity, whether it's just volunteering locally in a smaller initiative. I'm wondering just in closing, what words of encouragement or empowerment you would offer to those who are tuning into this episode, many of whom are actively involved in various pro-life organizations, but some of whom might still be on the sidelines. Maybe they're pro-life in their heart of hearts, but they don't know what that looks like in their daily life. What words of encouragement would you offer to them? Well, I think don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Speak out. Um, I mean, nobody ever assassinated us yet. Uh, to this day, I mean, we're, what are we afraid of? We're just public, uh, people may think badly of me. Well, too bad, you know. We speak, don't think too well of people who are pro-abortion either. But that is a dialogue that has to be brought forward and people should not be afraid. They should speak out and have the courage of what they know is right. And I'm sure there are many people who would like to speak out, who do feel intimidated by um, the public will think I'm terrible or they think I'm a, a fanatic. Too bad, you know, you've got a right to speak out. You've got a right to have an opinion. And the left wing should not dominate Canada as it is at this minute. Um, we have to change society. And the only way to do it is by speaking out on social media or whatever. Um, um, write a letter to the editor if you're not any good at technical things. Um, but do it. And even if they don't publish your letter, never forget that your letter is read. And they can discard it, but they know there's people out there who object to what's going on. So every letter you send, whether to your MP who may be pro-abortion, whether it's letter to the editor who may be pro-abortion, they know that there are resistance to what they are trying to promote and push. 
And that's why everything is important. Don't just say, well, my letter doesn't do any good. Yes, it does. It does. It shows resistance to the anti-life, anti-family policies are taking place. Absolutely. I, I think that's a phenomenal way to end this in, um, conversation. Thank you so, so much, Gwen, for joining me. This, the, I, I could ask you a million more questions and take up your entire afternoon, but we'll have, to, we'll have to schedule another conversation because I find it so fascinating to learn about the journey that this, this national conversation, this global conversation ultimately about abortion has been on to continue to learn how to better engage our culture. And so... Thank you so, so much for joining okay, me. Well, thank you very much, Cam, for having me. Okay, bye-bye. Wonderful. Thank you. That was my conversation with Gwen Landolt, the current National Vice President and Legal Counsel for Real Women of Canada. I hope that you enjoyed the interview. Um, I, I love talking to what I often call the architects of Canada's pro-life movement, somebody who's involved right from the very beginning in developing Canada's pro-life movement into what we have now today. And so I really enjoyed the conversation. I hope you did as well. If this is your first time tuning into Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, we do this basically every Thursday. And so you can tune in for all of our other episodes, not only going forward, but you can find them on our website, ProLifeGuys.com. You can find them on all of your favorite podcast catchers, whether that's Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever it may be. Um, you can also find us on YouTube, the Pro-Life Guys podcast. And not only Humans of the Pro-Life Movement, you can find our flagship program, which is just the Pro-Life Guys podcast, where we discuss different apologetics components. On a weekly basis, every Tuesday, we put on a new episode, either interviews or discussions about apologetics components, helping you have compassionate and, and compelling conversations about abortion. And we also do a monthly roundup talking about um, a ton of abortion-related news from around the world, spoken at from a pro-life perspective. And so you can find all of that again on our website, ProLifeGuys.com. You can also find out more about the courses that we're running. You can find out more about the different merch items that we have, water bottles, mugs, whatever it may be, t-shirts. We got some sweet t-shirts. Check out um, those components. And if you want to become a financial supporter of this program, you can go to Patreon.com slash ProLifeGuys. You get some sweet promo codes. You get some sweet swag opportunities through that. And you have the... Um, the opportunity to generously support all the work that we're doing here help us reach even more people with even better content so please do check that out thank you very much for tuning in i again i hope that you enjoyed this interview um, slightly longer though it was i hope that you enjoyed learning from gwen about her incredible journey and i hope that you tune in again soon thanks so much god bless y'all